Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. kind of do a little bit of a recap. We're still in the book of Genesis. So two weeks ago, Brandon uh, preached on a really hard passage, just tons of twisted family dysfunction and, and racy kind of, you know, sexual prostitution stuff. And then last week, Ray's sermon included more seduction. So this week, it's gonna be kind of boring. But we do have cows eating other cows to look forward to. So let me catch you up a little bit here. Last week, uh, Ray was in Genesis 39, and Joseph was in Potiphar's house as a slave. Potiphar's wife accuses him of sexual assault. He's thrown into prison. Now, we're skipping chapter 40, but you do need to know that while he's in prison, Two of the other prisoners have dreams, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And Joseph tells them about their dreams, and it comes true. The cupbearer is released, and the baker is hanged. And as the cupbearer is leaving prison, Joseph pleads with him, remember me when you get back in Pharaoh's court, that I might get out of here. And the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph, And so that's where we pick this up. Genesis uh, 41, if you would stand, if you're willing and able, as we read God's word. This is a really long chapter. We've, we've, I've condensed it a little bit. You'll see some uh, verses missing, but this is a summary because they actually go through the dreams three times. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second dream. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted. And the thin blighted ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them the dreams, but none of them could interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember a young Hebrew interpreted our dreams to us. And as he interpreted us, so they came about. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered, Pharaoh It is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven ears. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind and also are seven years of famine. There will come seven years of great plenty, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. It will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means it is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since you have shown me all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all the people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph, clothed him in garments of linen and fine gold with a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in the second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one will lift hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave him in marriage a Sidnah, the daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. And during the seven years of plenty, the earth produced abundantly. And they gathered up all the food those seven years. Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance like the sands of the sea until it ceased to be measured, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The, father, uh, Joseph, the name of the second son was Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So when the famine had spread over all the earth, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. Moreover, all of the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all of the earth. This is the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me show you a picture this young soldier, his name is Lawton Clark. He was Army, 17th Airborne Glider Division. He was a Purple Heart recipient. During the worst winter in Europe, his company was in the Battle of the Bulge on what became known as Dead Man's Ridge. Only 20 men from his regiment survived. And at one point during the battle, Lawton was hunkered down in a foxhole by himself and the German tanks were just bombarding them with artillery. And there was a man in his company in a foxhole not too far away. 
And this man kept yelling at Lawton to come over to his foxhole. But Lawton just doubted that he was hearing what he was hearing. So the man kept yelling. And then the third time, the man yelled that he was hit and he needed Lawton's help. So Lawton began the dangerous crawl on his belly from one foxhole to the other. And when he got there, the guy was unharmed completely. And he looked at Lot and he started yelling at him for coming to his foxhole, saying, what are you doing here? Why did you do this? Get back over to your foxhole. And Lawton's like, you were yelling at me to come over. You insisted that I come. He goes, I did no such thing. Get out of here. Just then, the foxhole that Lawton was in was hit by a shell and it covered both men in dirt. And Lawton was bewildered and shocked. But later he said he knew that God had delivered him from death. I mean, that's just, that's just an amazing story of God's providential care in one man's life. But what does that story have to do with you or me? Well, you, probably nothing, but me, everything, because Lawton Clark is my father-in-law. And God's providence in his story dramatically impacts my story. We're looking at the life of Joseph and God's providence in his life. But what does that story have to do with you and I? Well, let's look at it and find out. So take your sermon outline. First, we see the trust we need in God's providence. So Pharaoh has these dreams, cows eating cows, crops eating other crops. It's a dream about a coming famine. And Pharaoh is shaken by this. So he calls all the magicians, all the wise men. No one can help him. And then the cupbearer remembers finally. There was this young Hebrew who could understand dreams. So Joseph is rushed from the prison to the palace of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. I hear that you're the dream man, that you have this crazy power to take dreams and see into the future. Now, this is... Uh, a crucial moment in the narrative. Will Joseph be able to interpret the dream? If this was a movie, the music would be getting really intense right now and rising and the camera would go back and forth between Pharaoh's face and Joseph and then span over to the wise men's kind of smirking. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not me. And this answer represents a complete reversal in Joseph's story. Because when he was young, he was a spoiled brat. He was the father's favorite. He would tattletale on his brothers. And he had these dreams about how he would rule over his brothers, how he would rule over his family. But then 
In the telling of those dreams, he was the center of the story. He was the ruler. He was the dreamer. He was acting superior and boasting, full of himself. And now, with all the twists and turns in his life, he's thrown in the pit by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. Potiphar's house, falsely accused, back in the prison, ups and downs, highs and lows. Joseph now sees that he is not the writer of his story. He has been humbled. He now sees that God is leading his life completely. Let me ask you, do you see God's providence in your life? Can you look back on your life? Can you see it? I love what Frederick Buchner says here. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and the pain of it, no less than in the excitement and the gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is grace. Look at your life. How how did you get here today? How did you get to Citrus County? That has to be God at work. (laughs) Now, in Egypt, Pharaoh is a god, okay? And here Joseph is, he's in the palace. He's in the most powerful country in the known world, standing in the face of a god, and he is telling him, no, it's not me, it's God. Joseph tells Pharaoh that God's revealed this to him. It is fixed in time. This famine is shortly about to happen. And it's gonna happen by the unstoppable force of God's hand. So get this. This is what Joseph, in a sense, is really saying to Pharaoh. God is greater than you, Pharaoh. All of Egypt is under the power of the God of the Hebrews. And Joseph is saying this in the palace a prisoner. He's saying, Pharaoh, the future of Egypt is in God's hands. Pharaoh is being told, you're not in control of your life. You're not in control of the future of Egypt. You see, kings, kings don't make history. God uses kings to make history. What did Jesus say before Pilate when he was a prisoner? He said to Pilate, you have no power over me except what has been given to you by God. You can't do anything, Pilate. Let me ask you a personal question, or maybe it's not really personal. What's the difference between you and God? What's the difference between you and God? He does not think he's you. (laughs) He, He never thinks he's you. But yet you and I, we think we're him all the time. We think that we control our story. We think we are making our own history, don't we? That we push, we run the controls. 
I love what Paul Tripp says here. He says, what do sinners need? We need to be freed from the bondage of self-rule and welcome the rule of the one who is the definition of everything that is good, right, true, and loving. Jesus came to liberate us from our will be done to thy will be done. And this is essential because self-rule is our doom. You know, for you and I to trust in God's providence in our life, to trust that God is the one that writes our story, we have to be broken of our own determination to rule our lives, to trust in ourselves. And we need to trust him most powerfully in our lives when life is really, really hard. When life and suffering is very difficult. You know, Genesis 41 begins by saying, after two whole years, this is added on to his time in prison. This is when the cupbearer forgot him. So his suffering is prolonged, it's extended. You know, he thought originally that, man, I'm gonna get out, I'm gonna get out soon, I'm getting out today. Now he's sitting in prison. Wondering what God was doing. Let me ask you, what do you do against that day? Against the day when suffering multiplies in your life. And it seems like an endless assault on your life. What do you do? Margaret Clarkson in her book, Grace Grows Best in Winter, wrote this poem reflecting on 2 Timothy Here's what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. For I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. She writes, against what day? The day of great temptation when powers of ill, subtle and strong, would overwhelm the fortress of mind and will. Against what day? The day when sudden anguish crushes the soul, when ruthless pain and cold, relentless sorrow take a bitter toll. Against what day? The day of swift destruction, when in a day the slowly garnered treasures of a lifetime are swept away. Against what day? The day when death's gray angel crosses my door, blotting out life's sweet song and golden sunshine forevermore. Against that day, the day of dread when strong heart faileth and hope is fled, the day of life's direst need or death's dark sleep, I am persuaded that my God is able my life to keep. You know, Joseph has two boys, it says, and he names the first boy Manasseh. And it says that the meaning is, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So what Joseph is doing is, he is naming God's loving providence in his story in the naming of his son. He is naming his trust in the Lord in his life thus far. 
But I want you to see that there's a, there's a note of sadness here in the naming of his boy. You know, God has made me forget all my hardship, and he had a lot. But then he also says, and all of my father's house, his family. Joseph is, is closing the book on ever seeing his family again. He, he, he's closing the book on ever being reconciled with his family again. Even as he is trusting God, there is this note of sadness. But what do we know? We know that God is not done with Joseph, don't we? And he's not done with you either. Sadness you may have, but gladness is what he has for you. God still is, God is still at work in your life. Do you know that? Do you see it? Second, look at this pattern. You know, Joseph, um, his rise to power is really fast. He goes from the pit to the pinnacle. He goes from the prison to the palace of power. He is rushed to the palace from the prison. He interprets a dream. Pharaoh gives him rule over his house, rule over Egypt. Pharaoh gives him his own ring, his signet ring, which would have been for Joseph to carry out the business in Pharaoh's name, a linen robe, a gold chain declaring his rank and status. He gives him a chariot, the second chariot. Chariots were like limousines in the day. Joseph is gonna ride in style. Then he has these men who are running before his chariots, calling out, bow the knee. These are like secret service, okay? Then he marries into a priestly family. The priestly families were the wealthiest, most influential and powerful families in all of Egypt. So he's got the best car, country club membership, the best clothes. He's got Amazon Prime, Yacht Club, free golf, power, privilege, wealth, and the huge responsibility to save the world from famine. No problem, right? You know, Joseph's whole life is crazy up and down pattern. At 17, he dreamed of ruling over his family, and then he was thrown into the pit. Sold to slavery in Potiphar's house. He rises to a high position in the house. Then he's sent to prison. He rises up again. And then he goes from prisoner to prime minister. You know, when Joseph was a punk kid, right? He just thought, after he had these dreams, he just thought his life was gonna go like this. Straight upward trajectory. Smooth sailing all the way to the top. And then he gets thrown into the pit the first time. And he, and he, he just shocked he almost emotionally comes undone. Isn't that how we look at our life? Don't we kind of think that our lives are just gonna go like this, you know? It's kind of what we want for our kids, like, you know, our lives just to go up on an upward trajectory, easy. But then we get thrown into another pit and we're shocked and we're angry and we're, we're in despair, we're afraid, and we don't realize that God is at work, that God is putting us into his his redemptive pattern in our story. Look what uh, uh, Sam Amaldi says about Joseph. He said, Joseph's story is the story of the whole Bible. 
It is the story of glory through suffering, exaltation through humiliation. It's the story of the cross and the crown. You see, the pattern of the Christian life is like a J. When God moves us down in suffering, pain, and loss, the collapse of idols, our sinning, being sinned against, but he's always moving us through the J for greater joy in him. In fact, in Joseph's life, it was lots of this. In your life, it's lots of this, is it not? You know, Joseph names his second son according to this very pattern in his story. Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has brought me up in the land of my affliction to make me fruitful. I mean, just look at every person in the Bible. Moses is a murderer who rises to be the leader of the people of Israel. You know, David is an adulterer and a murderer. But then he becomes a, a man after God's own heart and the king of Israel. You know, Rahab the prostitute becomes a pivotal hero, saving thousands. Paul is a terrorist killing Christians. He's converted, he becomes a leader in the church and writes most of the New Testament. And then we have Peter, denying coward Peter, becomes the rock of boldness, planting churches. Ruth, Esther, Judah, on and on, the lowest people, the worst people, the poor, the small, the suffering, this is the pattern of the Christian life. But some of us, we live outside that pattern because we don't understand that God is always at work. And sometimes we look at the evidence of our lives and all we can do is react with some kind of cold cynicism. And we say things like this, the love of God, God's loving providence and caring for my life. Is this some kind of a joke? It all sounds nice in theory, but just look at the wreckage of my life. I know deep down in my bones, I was created to be a palace, magnificent and stately, but my life is a pile of bombed out rubble with the way others have treated me, wronged me, victimized me. My life disproves the love of Christ. Now, if that's what you think, and a lot of us have been there, and some of you are there now, you're saying, my life, look at my life, it disproves the love of God. I just want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. Jesus became a man. And instead of ruling in glorious authority, as one would expect from a God become man, he's rejected and killed. His life is reduced to bombed out rubble. Why? So that he could sweep sinful you into the center of his heart and never let you go. Your suffering does not define you. His suffering does. 
you've endured pain involuntarily. He endured it voluntarily for you. Your pain is to push you to flee to him where he endured what you deserved. You know, if Jesus' J-shaped life itself, if, if in that he journeys through the depths of hell, pain and suffering and death for us, then you can bank everything in your life on his loving providence as you go through your own suffering on an upward trajectory towards heaven. I just wanna remind you how this is possible. The Bible says that we are in Christ if you're a Christian. It's your union with Christ. That his death, that our death was actually in his death. That we are in him, we have his righteousness, we are heirs of the kingdom. We will rule with him. We will ride in second chariot. Now, there will be times, if that's not enough, there will be times in this life that it's possible when we are in the pit of our lives that God raises us up in ways that we cannot even imagine. We go back to Genesis 39. Joseph is in the pit of prison. And this is what it says. The Lord was with Joseph and he showed him his steadfast love. So what that means is, is that as Joseph is in the pit of the J, he's actually experiencing intimacy with God. He's experiencing the heights of intimacy with God. Richard Williams was a uh, young surgeon and preacher he went to be a missionary in Tierra del Fuego. In 1851, their ship was forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived. Everybody on that ship died of cold and starvation. But even as they were suffering, Williams wrote this in his journal. Here's the first entry, April 18th, 1851. Poor and weak though we are, our abode is the very Bethel to our souls and God we feel and know is here. Then this, his last entry, should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. Are you kidding me? that even in the bottom, we can experience the heights of intimacy with Christ, such is the power of being in him. I've seen this. I've been in hospice with people and I've seen the intimacy they have as they die. It's beautiful. Third, providence, mission, mission. So the famine is coming. It's doom and gloom. Joseph says it's fixed by God. There's nothing you can do about it. It's gonna destroy the earth. It's gonna be severe. But Joseph, he's not passive. He doesn't just go, okay, well, there's nothing you can do. You just kind of ride it out and everybody's gonna die. No. Joseph goes into action. Now, our world is broken. Our world is falling apart in many ways. 
But you and I, we've been brought out of the pit by Christ and called into mission. So we don't mope around and whine about how bad things are all the time, how bad the economy is, how bad politics are. We don't grumble with a cynical self-righteousness saying, well, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. What's happened to our country? No. We see this as the best time to be a Christian. We see this as the best time to be the church of Jesus Christ. You know, Joseph is, is, is his calling is a tangible expression of God's covenant with Abraham. That, that Abraham, the blessing was that they were to bless the nations. So here you have Joseph in a pagan land. He's a follower of God and he is, he is working to bless and save the pagan world from disaster. <laughs> he's working with them. He's leading them. He's not sitting on the sidelines. God's providence in your life, your hardships, your abilities, and your talents, God has raised you up for such a time as this. This church has been raised up. And it all begins by realizing that what you do for work, what you do Monday through Friday matters to God. That you're to leverage whatever you do in your work to attack and love your neighbor and love your community to break the famine of human brokenness and chaos. I love what uh, George Bernard Shaw says this. He says, this is the true joy of life, being used up for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clot of ailments and grievances complaining that the world does not devote itself to making you happy. <laughs> you know, this question, why, why is the food, why is the food better and the hospitality better and the employees happier at Chick-fil-A versus Burger King? Why? Because Chick-fil-A has a mission that is bigger than just making money. Do you have that vision about your own life and what you do? Your vocation as an engineer, a mom, a doctor, a store owner, a nurse, a plumber is the primary way God is setting you on mission to leverage your call to love and serve your neighbor. But the church is mission headquarters. And we come here when we lose our way and remember who we are and what God has called us to do. And God's also called us as a church to be his ambassadors, reconciling the world to God through the gospel. You know, the, the great commission, Matthew 28. You know, you, you know, what the, you know there's something that it's in every person. One of the greatest longings of the human heart is to be part of something, to be part of a team, to be part of a, of a family that has a mission together that is greater than themselves. Here you are. You're in it. 
And the mission lies before all of us. Let's go. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.